Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again. Uh, and if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 16, page 875 uh, in the Bibles that are around you. And we'll be going through a good bit of Scripture, so definitely grab that and follow along if you would. Uh, while you're turning there, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but how many of you have ever been fired from a job or seen someone fired? Um, when, you know, before, we got some hands raised anyhow, but uh, I've, I've seen it happen a couple of times. Before I went into ministry, I, six years I spent in corporate America, and the first three were with a large company outside of Atlanta that's a publicly traded company, and I saw this happen twice, uh, and it's a bad gig whenever it happens, and obviously if, if you're the one going through it, but just to see it happen is no fun either, or if you've ever been part of having to be a part of that, uh, that's no fun, definitely. Um, but the way it happened in our company is a person's working along and uh, the vice president of this division, maybe a manager as well, and a security cop come up to the guy's cube or office and let them know, hey, uh, you've been terminated and they have to leave immediately. Um, and they might, they'll be allowed to come in at a later date after hours with supervision to retrieve their personal belongings, but they have to leave right then. Um, and so I've seen this happen twice. One was just kind of bad luck. This guy, he was, he was a good guy. He did pretty good work, but he wasn't indispensable. What he did could be uh, spread over other people. One of those that wound up being a lot of what he did came on to me. Uh, and so he was, he was let go. Um, another time I saw it happen was a lady, and, um, uh, and she needed to be let go. Um, she was a bottleneck, nothing was really happening except, and then I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but she just was a complete beast at Minesweeper and Solitaire. Just amazing at those two games. What we've got this morning in the parable uh, that begins the section of scripture we're going to be in is, is a guy who needs to be let go. Uh, Jesus tells us in verse 8 that he's dishonest, and so he's going to be let go. Um, but his dishonesty like goes all the way to the end because even in the midst of him being let go and being fired, right there at the end, just unbelievably dishonest and shady, he, he pulls a, another fast one and frauds his boss. Um, and it's, you know, from a worldly perspective, it's actually kind of clever, but it's completely shady and morally wrong. But the crazy thing about it, the first crazy thing, is that his boss winds up praising him for what he just did. And then even crazier than that, the sinless son of God seems to be holding him up as an example for us. And so what is that all about? This, this week I struggled as a as making, I was like, what in the world is Jesus trying to teach us through this? And I think what he's doing is he's using this story, a negative example to set up four positive lessons on stewardship. And so we're going to make our way through those, but first we'll just kind of go through the story, see what's going on there, and then we'll see these four positive calls to action that Jesus has for us, these four positive calls to steward well everything that he's entrusted to us. And so Luke chapter 16, verse 1, uh, just context-wise, Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die for our sins. And as he's going there physically, uh, and his, his disciples are following him there physically. He's teaching them what it means to follow him spiritually as they make their way there. And so here we go. Luke chapter 16, verse 1, page 875 in the Bibles around you. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting 
his possessions. And so just to help you get the picture, let's use some sanctified imagination here. So you've got this rich business owner, and he has a steward. He's got a manager. And so you can kind of think accountant, uh, bookkeeper, personal investment guy, all rolled into one. And so he's got full charge of this guy's personal investments as well as the running of the business. And so he's managing this guy's 401k, his 529 for college for the kids, his real estate, his stocks and bonds, just the whole portfolio. He's managing it. He pays the bills. He keeps the book. He handles payrolls. He makes decisions. He's just complete control over all that is the master's. And then the master gets word that he is wasting his possessions. And interestingly, this is the same Greek word that's used of the younger brother in chapter 15 who was wasting the inheritance, squandering the inheritance of his father. And so the master basically is going to put him on unpaid leave and call for an audit. So look at verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. He's going to, he's going to audit it. For you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, right, and note that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so this guy, he knows he's been busted. He knows he's about to get fired. Uh, he knows he's been found out. He doesn't even put up a defense at all. He knows, you know, I, I've done these things. And so he's got to think of something quick to provide for himself once he gets fired so that he'll be okay financially. And so he comes up with this, you know, uh, clever but completely shady idea. In verse 5, here's what he does. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil, or as my wife tries to correct me, oil. <laughs> he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So 50% 50 off. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. And so, you know, really, really shady what's going on here. Morally wrong, but untethered from a godly conscience. This is a clever deal because he knows he's losing his job. But he knows right now he's still the legal representative for his master. So he calls in people to try to get them kind of indebted to him. I'll scratch your back now. You scratch my back later. And so he calls him in and he's like, hey, 50 cents on the dollar. Here you go. You can have half off of what you owe my master. 80 cents on the dollar. You can have 20% off on what you owe my master. And, and we read this, and they're talking about oil and wheat. And so the scale of what the guy's doing here doesn't really translate. And so one commentator noted how uh, what's going on here is actually about the year's worth of wages for an average worker. That's how much this dishonest guy's frauding his master out of in, in the deal that he's giving to the debtors. And so in the Nashville, I mean, $50,000. So, you know, Capital One calls you up, you owe them $100,000, they ask what's in your wallet, you say, I've got a five, and they say, well, we'll give you 50% off of what you owe. So your $100,000 that you owe, and if you've got a, that's a lot of credit card debt, $50,000, here you go, all you got to do is pay that back. Completely shady, all right? He would be convicted by the Securities and Exchange Commission today for 
uh, financial fraud. Completely shady. But then again, this is where it starts to go really, really weird because we would expect the master to be angry. And maybe he was, and the text just doesn't tell us that. But at the same time, even as you know he hated being frauded out of his money, he here admires the shrewdness of his former manager. Because look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He commends him. And then Jesus makes this point. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so what Jesus is doing here is not applauding this guy for his dishonesty, but lamenting the fact that when it comes to money, all right, and when it comes to their money, the sons of this world, okay, people, just people in general, will go to unbelievable lengths and just be crafty and resourceful and clever and just whatever it takes to provide for themselves. But when it comes to the things of God, the sons of light, okay, Christians don't seem to be nearly as concerned, don't seem to be nearly as burdened for the things of God as they do for their own personal finances. That so often we too are dishonest stewards. We're dishonest managers, more concerned about ourselves than the things of God, frauding the Lord out of His money. Because understand well, we own Nothing. And Sarah just read Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so it's His. All of it. Every tree, every leaf, every dollar, every dime. It's all His. And we are His stewards. And so this whole story is just a, a, a positive lesson on how we are to live as faithful stewards built out of a negative example, calling us to steward God's gifts well. And in particular, I think there are four things that he calls us to between verses 9 and verse 18 that we are to steward well. And the first one is this. It has to do with finances. All right, to steward our finances well, but in particular, to steward your finances redemptively. And so number one in your notes, steward your finances redemptively. And so look at verse 9. And Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may, rec they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right, we're going to make our way through this. But first of all, Jesus could be using irony here. All right, that is possible. He could be just saying, go ahead and do what the dishonest manager did and just use that wealth and try to gather as many friends as you can for as long as you can, but see if they're going to be there when your time comes. It's possible he was doing that. But again, I think the main thrux here is that Jesus is drawing an analogy between the feverishness and the importance that the dishonest manager placed on you know, um, finding his employment and being ready for unemployment Draw an analogy between that and then how that same level of importance should be for us as we get ready for eternity. Because our time is short. And eternity is long. And everyone is going to die. 
say it all the time like this. You're either coming to my funeral or I'm doing yours. That's the way this is going to go. That's life. And so the question then we have to ask is, what are you going to do with the time that you have? You've got a little bit. What are you going to do with the time that you have? And Jesus' call here is to live redemptively. All right, to live with an eternal mindset, 80 years, that's what I get, then eternity, all right, if we're lucky. All right, and so to live with this eternal mindset and to steward your finances that way. Because as I read this week, worldly matters are not the matters that really matter. Worldly matters are not the matters that really matter. Eternity is. And so Jesus, verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. In other words, use your worldly wealth to make everlasting friends, to see people repent and believe and be given eternal life, and they'll be there in heaven when you get there, receiving you into the eternal dwelling. Now, to be honest, I don't know why Jesus calls wealth unrighteous here. Money's morally neutral, right? It's not intrinsically evil. It's not intrinsically good. The love of money is what is the root of all evil, not money itself. So I'm not sure why, you know, he, he calls it unrighteous here. Probably just kind of commenting on the pervasive, pervasiveness of wealth being used unrighteously or acquired unrighteously or viewed unrighteously. But whatever the reason, the point is the same here. Jesus is saying, use that wealth for spiritual gain. Right? Spending it wisely for spiritual eternal things before death. Now, culture tells us the absolute opposite of this. Culture says, do what makes you happy and do it now. That's the path to joy in this life. But if that's true, why are we never satisfied? Why do we never get enough? Why does everything that we've ever found happiness in seem to fade at least to some degree? Whether it's people or places or status or excitement or wealth or power or comfort or drugs or sex or the latest trinket, new house, new car, new experience. It all fades to the point that we wind up doing what I call the bounce game, which is where we have to bounce from one thing to another thing to another thing on this incessant treadmill of trying to drink from leaky cisterns, finding satisfaction and joy and fulfillment in things that will never satisfy. So we bounce from this one because we get a hit. And then we crash from that high, so we bounce to this one and we get a hit. And we're always bouncing from one to another. And Jesus is saying, invest your life better than that. Worship and enjoy me. Because I won't let you down. I'm the, Jesus is saying, I'm the thing your restless soul is searching for that you've tried to fill with a thousand God replacements. I'm that. And so rest in me. You'll find rest for your restless soul in me. Augustine, 4th century. This is his famous quote. 
worship and enjoy me. And lead others to do the same. Make friends that will last forever. That will be with you in eternity. Right? Personally doing that. This is, we're to steward our lives this way, but then financially stewarding our money in a way that will lead to more and more and more people being in heaven who will someday, verse 9, receive us into the eternal dwellings. And so using a great old school term here, think about this, when the role is called up yonder and we meet friends there who are the recipients of our financial help. Victims of natural disasters whom we helped by sending emergency relief. Members of distant tribes who hear the gospel through missionaries that we help to support. Sex addicts and drug addicts who were saved through a ministry we partnered with. Persons with special needs in Central Asia who've heard the gospel because of our financial help. Street children in Iquitos, Peru who've been rescued from the streets. Shown that they are valuable and they're loved and they're not forgotten and educated and taught the love of Jesus. People right here in Nolensville whose lives are transformed by Christ and then they're discipled and then in turn they lead other people to trust in Christ and their lives are transformed. When we get to heaven, what a day that's going to be when we meet all of those people and they receive us into everlasting life. We meet these eternal friends. And so steward your resources, your finances redemptively redemptively, not just on yourself and on your kids and on your hobbies, but redemptively as first priority, right? And this, practically speaking, means tithing to whatever local church you're a member of and then giving to all kinds of things beyond that. And if you're not there yet, I get that. There's no judgment here, all right? But start making steps. This is what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to lives of lavish generosity, and lives where we steward our finances redemptively as the first priority, the first line item on the budget. And so number one, steward your finances redemptively towards everlasting friends. And then number two is a little more broad, but it's just in general to steward your life faithfully. All right, so number two, steward your life faithfully. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little, is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? He's talking spiritual riches. And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And famous, famous verse of Scripture here, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so here at the end, again, he's hammering on finances. Basically saying you've got to pick your God. Everybody's got one. And everybody serves that God. They worship that God. They give time to that God. They bow. They do whatever it takes to please that God. And Jesus is saying you can pick the real God or you can pick the false God, but you can't have both. See, love for the world pushes out love for God. And love for God pushes out love for the world. They are mutually exclusive. 
And so just kind of to begin asking us some questions, ask yourself, is, is what is printed on our money true of you? In God we trust. Or would it be better for that money in your pocket to say, in this God I trust? Where's your trust and where's your hope? Is it in a bank account? Or is it in Christ? Your, word, your life is worth far more than spending it bowing to the God of money. Steward money well. Steward it faithfully. All right? And steward your life that way. Even in the small things. Uh, how many of you know who John Wooden is? I do want you to raise hands here. Okay, how many of you know who Mike Krzyzewski is? Okay. Mike Krzyzewski could not hold a candle to John Wooden. Right, John Wooden won 10 NCAA basketball championships at UCLA. That is a feat that will never be matched as, as a coach. 10 of them. He coached 10 national championship teams. And every single season, on the first day of practice, he did the exact same thing. And this is what it was. He taught his players how to properly put on their socks. I am not kidding you. He taught him the seam needs to go right here across the toes so it doesn't rub, and the heel needs to go right here. Now, is that why he won 10 NCAA championships? If we just all learn to put on our socks on, are we going to all become, you know, instantly LeBron James or Steph Curry, whoever's your guy, or KD, whoever you want to be pulling for? No, 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 no. But what he knew, he knew this verse. He knew that if he could get his players to pay attention to the details... And be willing to do the small things. They would do the big things. If they would be faithful to do these little mundane things. They would be ready to do the bigger things. He believed verse 10 here. And everybody wants the big moments. Everybody does. But the way you get to those moments is by being faithful in the small things. And so friends, let's endeavor to live that way. Stewarding our life faithfully, not just when we're seen, but especially when we're not seen. We're behind closed doors, and yeah, we're going to slip, and we're going to stumble at times, and we run back to the grace and mercy of Jesus and repentance and need of help, but let's run, let's endeavor, let's strive together. Character is built in our little choices. Are you going to keep this commitment, or are you going to cut corners? And so be faithful in the little things. Control what you can control. And then just leave everything else up to God. All right? Drilled into my head in our formative days early in marriage, obey God and leave the consequences to Him. Obey Him and leave the consequences to Him. And so what seemingly small things do you need to be faithful in? So that you can be entrusted with larger things. What seemingly small things do you need to be faithful in? And as a church, as a church body, what do we need to be faithful in? So that larger things might be entrusted to us. And then a follow up on that one. What are you doing to help that happen? What are you doing to help that? The church needs to do this, this, and this. All right, well, what are you doing to help that happen? I mean, I think just off the top of my head, pray, evangelize, 
and read your Bible. Simple, small things that will transform your life. Small things, if done over the long haul, result in gigantic changes. Small things done for a long time result in massive changes. And so number one, we're called to steward our finances redemptively. Number two, here, steward our life faithfully. And then verse 14 through 17, I think, is calling us to steward our Bibles rightly. All right, so number three, steward your Bible rightly. Look at it with me, verse 14 through 17, so I can show you what I'm talking about. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, all right, so they do not like what Jesus is saying, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God doesn't care if you're esteemed or admired by others. He cares if you are faithful. I preach that to myself this week. The wall in the, verse 16, the wall and the prophets, that's Old Testament, were until John, he's talking about, Jesus talking about his cousin, John the Baptist. He was the last Old Testament prophet. So the wall and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so Jesus is calling out the Pharisees here for the way in which they wrongly handle the Bible, all right, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And so he's calling them out for you know, how they wrongly handle this uh, and how they had turned the Old Testament with 39 books all right, of the Old Testament how, that are focused on the, the grace and the mercy and the promise of a Messiah who is to come. They had taken that and they had turned it into a system whereby you could save yourself through religious moral conformity. Performance. Very much older brother from last week in chapter 15. So do this and do this and God will owe you. You can put God into your debt by your actions. You can control it. You do this, this, and this, and then God has to do this. And so Jesus is calling them out because that's not what the Bible is about. But we still have people who believe that today. Right? You will also have people who build a complete, handle the Bible wrongly and build a complete theological system off of one verse plucked completely out of context. So to give you an example, if we wanted to do that, we could go right here. Jesus praises this dishonest and shrewd master. Come on, let's all commit financial fraud and we'll just blow the church up. Let's do, right? You could build, you can make the Bible say anything you want to say if you pluck it out of context. So when you're reading the Bible, context is king. Always. Context is king. You also have people who wrongly handle the Bible because they don't factor in genres that it's written in. So they'll take poetry and treat it as if it's, you know, narrative. And so it's exactly what it says here. No, it's, it's poetry. That means there's metaphors. So we need to understand that. You've got people who say, well, since Jesus has come, the wall then is meaningless. It doesn't matter anymore. And so they fail to understand that there's ceremonial and there's civil and there's moral law and that ceremony and civil have been fulfilled in Jesus and they therefore are no more. That's why we can eat shrimp and bacon. 
okay? But that's why the moral law of God is still in effect, because it's a reflection of his character and his holiness and his perfection. And since he doesn't change, that doesn't change. And so it's still in effect. And so Jesus calls us to steward the Bible rightly. It's not something that we take and try to invent something. Like, I should, if you ever come to something, you're like, I see something in this verse that I don't think anyone has ever seen in the history of the world. 99% chance you are wrong. All right? Don't don't treat the Bible as, okay, here's what I need to do. And if I do this, this and this, you know, and I need to be really, really, really good. And if I'm really, really good, then God will love me and he will accept me. Being good, we talked about this last week, is not salvation. Trusting that Jesus was good for you is. See, even the most moral among us are not moral enough for God. The most obedient among us are not obedient enough for God. The most devoted among us are not devoted enough for God because the standard of God is perfect holiness and righteousness. Perfect. And so we're never going to meet that. And that's the whole point of the Bible. The Bible, big story, is trying to tell you God's holy, you're not. And so God, because of his love, sent his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So he came and lived a life that you didn't because we've all sinned and blown it. So we came and did it perfect. And then the life that we're condemned to die for our sin, Jesus came and paid that sin debt for us. And then like a giant exclamation point that echoes through eternity, he rose again showing that it's been paid, that our sin is no more, Jesus has defeated sin and death and has given us a gift we cannot earn forgiveness and eternal life. Not based on anything we did, but on what Jesus did. And so he gets all the glory. And so salvation is not just about Jesus dying for your sins. It's also that he lived for you. And he credits your, his perfect life for yours. He gives that to you. He clothes that. He puts that on you. And so trust him. Take what he gives and then live your life as a response to that. Not, it's not prerequisites. It's a response. Just pour your life out. Make eternal friends with how you steward your money and delight in the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the love and the glory of King Jesus. That's what the Bible's about. So steward it rightly. It's one story of a king who came to rescue. And then fourthly, almost kind of as an example of, of how the law is still in effect, we have a call, verse 18, to steward your marriages biblically. Because, verse 18, look at this with me. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And so I find it kind of interesting that this comes on the heels of a series that we just did on marriage that wrapped up two weeks ago. And if you missed part of that or all of that, um, go out and grab it. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it on our website. You can get it on the app. I, I, think, it, I think it'll be helpful. Um, so I, I think it'll be helpful for you. So, so listen to that. But in that series, we talked about how God has made husband and a wife 
an inseparable union by covenant, not contract, right? By covenant, an unbreakable promise, and that they're no longer two, they're now one flesh, and that the ultimate goal of that sacred union is to paint a picture of Christ's love for the church by the way that we treat our spouses, because like Jesus, we must love sinners. You married a sinner. And so in your marriage, how you love that sinner, you're showing the love of Jesus towards sinners and how you treat your spouse because they are a sinner. You're painting a picture there. And God loves us by covenant, not contract. He never divorces us. But if we treat our marriages as trivial matters where in the back of our minds we always, you know, just live with the idea, well, if it, if it goes bad, all right, if it gets bad enough, then I'll just get out. All right, so divorce is always on the table in the back of our minds because it's not really that big of a deal. Everybody does it anyhow. If we're going to paint a picture with our marriages and we live in that way, what are we saying about Christ and the church? We're saying Christ would divorce the church. And so we're painting a heretical picture. But also, God doesn't command us. In, he doesn't give us commands in Scripture for our harm. All right. So you've got for the glory of God, but then also for the good of mankind. That's what God always does with his commands. And so his commands here, as it relates to marriage and sex, you know, and they, they work this way and not this way. It's not God ever trying to rob you of joy or happiness or pleasure. It's him trying to lead you into it. He designed the world. He knows how it works best. And he hates to see the image of Christ in the church marred. But he also hates to see his people hurt. And so he calls us to steward our marriages biblically, not culturally. Not looking at culture where divorce is commonplace and optional when you're tired of someone, you want something else, or it's just not working, whatever it is. No, no, God's call is stay in. Stay in. It's a covenant before God. And even in those cases where I believe Divorce and remarriage are permissible according to Matthew 19 and uh, 1 Corinthians 7, okay, where adultery has taken place or abandonment has taken place or both. Oftentimes they go together. Even in those places where I believe divorce and remarriage are permissible, even in those close cases, it's not something to be entered into quickly. But like, insofar as it depends on you through the deepest pain of betrayal and tears, you seek to reconcile. But after having sought every angle of reconciliation, you've sought it and you've sought it and you've sought it. Then in instances of adultery or abandonment or, or even like a, a no-fault divorce before someone was a believer and now they are a believer and they're, you know, they, they're understanding what God teaches about marriage. Even in those instances where I think divorce and remarriage are biblically permissible, go slow. But when... You've sought and you sought and you sought, and, it, and it's not going to, there is no possibility for reconciliation. Then, in those instances, you're free. You're free. 
but just a divorce for the heck of it type of idea. Just, I don't care. Just divorce for the heck of it type of idea. Verse 18 hits really, really hard. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is why I won't marry certain people. And that's not fun to tell them. Especially when you're kin to them. And so God has a hatred for divorce. Malachi 2.14 But listen to me loud and clear. While God hates divorce, he loves divorcees. Loves them. And so does his church. No one walks around here with a, you know, your, your salvation in heaven doesn't have an asterisk on it. No one walks around here with a great big D painted on their head. If we want to do that, then every single one of us can have a letter painted on our head. Every single one of us. Christ's blood covers all sin. And so, who, who are, you know, if you've gone through a divorce of some sort, that, that's not, many of you have a biblically permissible one, but even those of you who may not, and you've gone through a divorce of some kind, how does God view you now? He views you as holy and blameless because His love and affection for you is based on Christ, not you. He views you that way. holy and blameless in Christ and loved and devoted on by your heavenly father because Jesus took your sin just as he took my sin. And Jesus gives you, clothes you with his righteousness just as he clothed me with his righteousness so that we now both stand clean and free before him. And so because of all of this that we've talked through, which is quite a bit, let us endeavor with all of our hearts and the support of one another to steward well these things that we've talked about. To steward our finances redemptively. To steward our lives faithfully, even in the small things. To steward our Bible rightly. Not picking and choosing, I'm going to believe this, I'm not going to believe this. Understanding it properly. And to steward our marriages biblically. The goal is not, don't get divorced. The goal is, paint a picture of Christ and the church. And so the call here is to steward these things well and be found faithful when our heavenly boss walks around. Let us make sure that he finds us living faithfully and not playing metaphorical solitaire and minesweeper. Steward your time well. This is the only one you'll get, the only life. Let's pray. Father, your word teaches us to number our days And I feel, Lord, that a lot of times the younger we are, the harder that is to realize. Would you help those of us that are younger to realize life is really, really, really short? And would you help younger and older in here cross-generationally to aid one another? Titus 2 Older women speaking to younger women and younger women speaking to older women and older men teaching younger men and younger men giving life to older men. And would you help us to steward this life, this precious gift you've given us? In all ways, our finances, just our life in general, uh, how we understand the scriptures and our marriages. 
And Father, for those who or maybe have gone through a divorce and they feel the, the hurt and the sting of that word, may they find great grace in your comfort and in your peace and may they find great grace in your people. Father, may none of us in this room, regardless of what skeletons we might have in the closet, baggage that we're carrying around, would you help us to drop the baggage? And would you help us to know that in no way, shape, or form is there some asterisk by our salvation or by your love for us? Your love is free. Your grace is sufficient. And every single one of us is morally bankrupt and we just fall on sheer grace that finds us everywhere. Whether we're rich or poor, saint or sinner, it finds us because you lavish it out. And may we be people. May this church be marked by people who lavish grace. We just exude it. We breathe it in and we breathe it out. We bless your name, our great God and Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.